and says this, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do. If God permits. The book of Hebrews is not a book for theological lightweights. It would definitely not be my first choice if I were to recommend the first book to a new convert and say, Here, here is where you should start. I would not start at the book of Hebrews. I would start with the Gospel of John or perhaps the Gospel of Mark and give them a chance to get acquainted with the Jesus in whom they now believe. And having finished one of the Gospels, I would then direct them into the book of Acts so that they could see the history of the church to which they now belong. And they could see how the Gospel began to spread to every tribe and tongue and people and nation and begin to transform the world by the grace of God. And having finished Acts, I would probably lead them into the book of Romans. For although Romans is an intensely theological and doctrinal work, it is at Also, at the same time, utterly foundational to our understanding of salvation. It answers that most basic and pressing question of human existence, which is, how can sinners be set right in the sight of a just and holy God? And I would go on from there. But it would be some time before I would say, now, now you're ready for Hebrews. Especially if there was no teacher to explain to them all of the Old Testament foundations and to unpack for them its covenantal framework. When you begin to work through the argument to the Hebrews, what you are doing is scaling one of the highest peaks in the biblical landscape. And it is often tough going. It's like trying to climb the the sheer face of a mountain. Every step takes precision and and the skill of an experienced climber. Hebrews is not for beginners. It takes some theological tools in your bag and it takes some Christian experience under your belt before you're ready to climb to the summit of Mount Hebrews. And the author recognizes this fact. He's aware that what he's writing is weighty and deep. He intends in this letter to ascend to the majestic heights of Jesus Christ, the great high priest of the new covenant. A high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A high priest whose ministry on behalf of sinners is effectual and eternal. A high priest who has accomplished an everlasting reconciliation and has made peace with God and who stands at the right hand of the Father, but who also at the same time reigns upon the throne of His kingdom. He is the king and the priest. Those both offices join together in the one person forever who is Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the heights to which He's going. 
near the end of chapter 5 though, when he's right in the middle of, of scaling this tremendous theological peak, which he will continue, by the way, to climb in chapters 7 through 10, he pauses. Why? Well, I suspect that he suddenly senses that many in the congregation to whom he's writing are not tracking with him. They're not keeping up. They're sort of stuck there below him on a ledge, unsure of their footing and unwilling to follow him any further. So he pauses in his argument here at at verse 11 of chapter 5, and he enters into a brief digression, a parenthesis in his argument, in which he is going to admonish them for not keeping up, and he's going to warn them about what their lack of maturity in the faith might indicate. See, the author is aware that he's not... He's not writing for beginners. He's not writing to theological novices. The problem is, is that the audience to whom he's writing are not beginners. They're not new to the faith. They've been at this journey for a while, and the Spirit-inspired author of Hebrews is convinced that they ought to be further than they are by now. They ought to be ready to ascend this mountain with him. That's the context in which we find Hebrews 5.11 to 6.12. It's a passage that we will cover over the next two weeks. In the first half of the passage, 5.11 to 6.3, the author admonishes the congregation for their lack of growth and maturity in the faith. And in the second half, which we'll cover next week, he warns them about the danger of not growing and he exhorts them to pursue what he calls in verse 11 of chapter 6, the full assurance of hope until the end. So today we're going to focus on the first half, 5.11 to 6.3, and we're going to look briefly at three elements that comprise Christian maturity. Three elements of maturity in the faith. Here they are. I'm going to give them to you up front. Number one, we're going to look at the expectation to Christian maturity. Then we'll move on to the benefit of maturity. What, What is the benefit to those who grow in the faith? And then thirdly, we'll conclude with the means of maturity. How does one become mature in the faith? All right, so let's, let's begin to unpack the expectation to Christian maturity. Underlying this passage, and I hope that you see it, I want to point it out to you. Underlying this passage is an expectation that as the normal course of, of Christian experience, a believer in Christ will grow. They will mature. They will grow stronger in faith. They will go deeper in their knowledge of Christ. That's, according to the author, do you see it? That's just the norm. Such that it is surprising and disturbing when it doesn't happen. It is surprising and disturbing when a church has been around for a while. It's at least a second generation church we saw from Hebrews chapter 2. And they can't go any deeper than the elementary principles of the oracles of God. There's this profound sense of disappointment and concern that this church is not maturing. Where do you find this expectation? Well, it's in his words in verses 11 through 12. Look down there with me. Concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk 
and not solid food. By the way, the concerning him of verse 11 could also just as easily be translated concerning which or concerning this. The former concerning him would refer to to Melchizedek about whom he will speak more in chapter 7. The broader, more general uh, translation would be concerning which, and it would refer to all of the discussion of Jesus as the high priest, which began actually at the end of chapter 2, was touched on in chapter 3, and began in earnest at chapter 4 and verse 14, and will continue all the way through chapter 10. And I think that's what he's meaning. I think he's referring back to the whole argument which he has already delved into, which he's pausing in right now, and which he will continue about halfway through chapter 6. So concerning which, Jesus as high priest, we've got much more to say. But it's hard to explain. You're not tracking with me. You're, you're, not, you're not keeping up because you have become dull of hearing. He's saying that his discussion of the saving work of Jesus Christ is a weighty and, and complex theological discussion which is going to take him some five chapters to unpack but he's concerned that some and I think we get the sense of many in the church are not able to track with him because they become dull of hearing they've regressed in their faith they've stalled out in their pursuit of the knowledge of Christ they've stopped listening attentively to Christian teaching. And then he expresses his dismay at the fact that though by this time they not only know, or ought to know, but ought to be able to explain this to others, to those who are newer in the faith, he can't even proceed on because now he's got to go back to the basics. They need a remedial course in what he calls the elementary principles of the oracles of God, which we'll cover in just a moment. It's like he's trying to to teach his church to teach his class all of the beauty of Shakespeare, all of the the depth and the intricacies of, of Shakespearean drama, and they need a course in their ABCs. He's not even sure they know how to read. It's like he's trying to teach them a seminary level course in theology, and they're still struggling to get out of kindergarten. And can I tell you my concern? We live in an age that doesn't value sharpness of mind and keenness of intellect. And there is probably within some of you, although you may not admit it, an idea of sort of, well, what's wrong with that? Maybe he shouldn't be speaking so so high. And I'm just trying to point out to you that the God-breathed word of Scripture this morning is that it's not okay to stay in theological kindergarten. It's not okay to not build upon the foundation that you heard 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. It's not okay. In fact, he's going to go on and he's going to say it's dangerous. Or to change the metaphor a little bit, he says, I'm trying to feed you meat and potatoes, which is good for your bones, it's good for your muscles. And you can't digest anything but your mother's milk. 
So do not miss the underlying point in these verses. Listen. It is fine to need to learn to read and write if you're in kindergarten. And it's perfectly acceptable to drink milk if you're an infant. It's okay to need to be taught the elementary principles of the oracles of God if you are a new believer. The problem arises when you're 5, 10, 20, 50 years in and you can't handle anything but spiritual milk. The problem arises when you've been in kindergarten 12 years going. This is most certainly not okay. And in fact, judging by the severe warning, which is going to come next week in verses 4 through 8, such a lack of growth reveals a serious deformity that issues in serious consequences. The expectation, let's just set this down, the expectation of this Holy Spirit-inspired biblical author is that a true believer will grow in the faith and will mature in his understanding of biblical truth. Did not Jesus say exactly the same thing in John 15? When he described the difference between the living and the dead branches. Do you remember? I am the vine. You are the branches. A living branch, he says. One that abides in the vine and and is receiving its nourishment and receiving its sustenance and drinking in the sap from Christ. It's going to grow. And it's going to bear much fruit, he says. A dead branch, on the other hand, does not grow, but rather dries up and shrivels and eventually is cut off and, you can't back away from it, is cast into the fire and burned. And the the stunning thing about John 15 is that Jesus allows for no middle ground. The middle ground that makes up the vast majority of today's evangelical church. Jesus couldn't conceive of it. Because it doesn't exist. You're either living and growing or you're dead and drying. Which, by the way, is exactly the same thing that the author of Hebrews is going to tell us in Hebrews 6 7. Ground that drinks the rain which often falls in it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, right? Fruitful, receives a blessing from God. But if it's constantly drinking in this rain and yet is only yielding thorns and thistles, and then he he gives us some pretty, pretty violent words here. It's worthless. It's close to being cursed. And it's liable to be burned. So mark this down, beloved. It is the normal course of Christian experience to grow in faith. To mature in your understanding and knowledge of Christ and so to bear much fruit. That's the norm. The expectation of God of every believer in this room is that you would grow and that you would bear fruit. The expectation of God of every one of us this morning is that we would mature into faithful, steadfast, fruit-bearing disciples. Now, before we move on to the benefits that 
that come to those who are mature in the faith. I want to spend just a moment on the elementary oracles of God because, don't hear me, there is a place for fundamentals. It would be ridiculous to say that that we should never focus upon ABCs anymore. You need them to read, right? So so we need to make sure if, if God has given to us this foundation, we ought to make sure that the foundation is properly laid and we shouldn't neglect the fact that, that there may be infants in the faith who are here, and maybe some who aren't even in the faith who need to know how to get into the faith. So let's spend just a moment, because the author of Hebrews does, in Hebrews uh, 6, 1 and 2, let's spend a moment on these elementary teachings, these fundamentals of the faith. Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, okay? That's the exhortation in this text for all of you who have been believers for a while. Here's the word of God to you this morning. Press on to maturity. But there's a word of God to the new in the faith this morning too. He says, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Okay, the author refers to these things as the foundation, okay, not laying again the foundation, which implies that they are vitally important, kind of like the ABCs are foundational to reading, so these are the ABCs of the Christian faith, which are foundational to all of the theological building that we're going to do. So we're not saying that elementary teachings are unimportant and irrelevant. They're vitally important and incredibly relevant. Indeed, without this doctrinal foundation underneath us, supporting everything else that that rests on top of it, the whole building of our Christian life would would collapse. And, And you probably have seen some of that happen. You probably have seen that happen in the life of somebody who began building, but they were building on what Jesus called a foundation of sand. They didn't have the right cement underneath them they didn't have the right rock on which to build the house of their life okay so let's walk through these six items just taking a a a minute on each one of them let's walk through these six items and make sure that we have a solid foundation for the future growth that's going to take place at first baptist nixon in your life solid foundation the author of hebrews calls these six teachings elementary and foundational Because when you look at the book of Acts, you're going to find that these six elements comprise the apostolic preaching of the gospel that we find in those pages. In other words, when the gospel first went out into the world, guess what the apostles were preaching? Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Baptism and the laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead and eternal punishment, eternal judgment. Read Acts and see if you don't see these coming out of Peter's mouth and Philip's mouth. And Stephen's mouth and Paul's mouth. It's the apostolic preaching of the gospel. In other words, when the apostles were first sent out by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they preached these six things. And so, if, if perhaps maybe you are here and you're, and you're totally new to the faith, maybe new as a believer or you're just sort of checking it out and wanting to know what the Christian faith is all about and you want to know where to begin, here's where you begin. Or... Maybe you're going to Cuba in three weeks, and you want to know what to say to unbelievers. Here's what they need to know. I think I can, I think I can, can group these six into three sets of two. 
The first two deal with conversion to Christ. The second two deal with our initiation into the Christian church and life. And the last two deal with the consummation of the the end of the Christian life. So let's talk about conversion. How do you begin as a Christian? Well, you must repent from your dead works and you must believe the gospel of God. What are dead works? Dead works are, are whatever works arise out of a dead heart. They're whatever works arise out of a a heart that has not yet been born again, unregenerate, unbelieving heart. It's only producing thorns and thistles. It's producing death. And we need to be careful because dead works manifest themselves in different ways depending on your religious background. In other words, you can be irreligious, not really have grown up in a Christian home, and, and dead works may look more like immorality or idolatry or any one of those things that Paul mentions that, that are the manifestation of paganism in Romans chapter 1. But that's not going to be most of us. Most of us are going to come from some sort of Judeo-Christian ethic that we've been raised with. We're going we're to come from some sort of background in the Christian faith, and so you want to know what dead works for us look like? They look like Pharisees. They look like the works of whitewashed tombs that outwardly appear righteous, but inwardly is full of dead men's bones. They look, at, they look like faithless church going and loveless offering giving and, and just dry, dutiful Bible reading. Why do you read your Bible? Because that's what believers do. Why do you go to church? Got to. So you can do Christian things and then still be a dead work. And so where the Christian life absolutely begins is to say, I don't care whether you come from a religious or an irreligious background, whether whether you grew up in a Christian home or a non-Christian home, if you don't repent of the death that's being produced by your dead heart, you will not see life. Repentance from dead works is the foundation of the rest of the Christian life. Whether it's the immorality and idolatry of pagans or the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, conversion begins with turning away from everything else that I was hoping in previously. But it's not just a turning away from the, the dead works that were arising out of my dead heart. It's a turning towards all that God has done in Christ to save me from those dead works. Through his life and death and resurrection. It's saying, you know what? I was hoping and trusting in my church going and my Bible reading and my offering giving and my, my morality. Or I was trusting in the fact that I didn't actually think there was a heaven and I didn't actually think I was accountable. So I was just sort of eating and drinking, being merry and, and for tomorrow we die sort of mentality. Repentance is turning away from all of that and saying there is a heaven, there is a God, I am accountable to him. And Jesus Christ is the only way that my sin can be forgiven and that was made possible through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Okay, repentance from dead works, faith in the gospel of God. Do you see it? It's conversion. You don't start there, you're not even started yet. You have to repent from dead works, trust in the gospel of God, okay? But say you've done that. Maybe you've made it that far. What's next? Something astounds me. I'm going to get off on a tangent here if I'm not careful. Time's a ticking, Tim. All right. You read through the book of Acts, something, the apostles, when they preached the gospel, you know what else they preached? Baptism. 
And I almost fear that we in Baptist circles are so afraid of mixing the two that we separate them further than the Bible did. No. What does Peter do when he stands up? On, I mean, the Holy Spirit has just fallen like an hour ago. You think he can get his message right? And he stands up and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So that's what we ought to say to the folks in Cuba. That's what you ought to say to your unbelieving friends. And that's what I say to you if you're not a believer. You must repent and be baptized. I think that's what he's talking about here when he refers to washings. My Bible does not have the word baptism. Maybe yours doesn't either. But it's wrong. There's a couple of reasons why it is. Okay. What, my Bible has the word washings. Where's that coming from? Well, it's because the word that is used here is not the usual word for baptism. The usual word for baptism is baptisma. Ma. Right? The, the word that's here for baptism is baptismas. Okay? They're very close, but they're not the same. And then the word here is in the plural, which it really isn't anywhere else when speaking of Christian baptism. So we've got to deal with that. So my Bible looked at that and they said, well, the translator said, uh, we don't think that he's talking about Christian baptism. We think he's talking about like ritual washings, right? Like the stuff you would find in the Jewish Old Covenant. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I want to tell you why. In the first century world, when the gospel first went to Jews and they were converted to faith in Jesus Christ, they would have been aware of a number of baptisms. John the Baptist didn't invent baptism. There's evidence that they had been being baptized, proselytes had been baptized to, in, into Judaism for at least a couple of hundred years. And then John comes around and he says, I, I, I'm baptizing you with a baptism of repentance. You need to repent and you need to be baptized as a, as a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Well, then Jesus came along and he says, I want you to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then right before he ascends into heaven, he speaks of another baptism. He says, Holy Spirit's going to come, and then you'll be baptized in the Spirit. Okay, so if, I, if I'm a new convert to Judaism, or if I'm a new convert to Christ out of Judaism, I'm aware of a number of baptisms, and I'm probably going to have some confusion as to which one's right. Is there any biblical precedence for that kind of confusion? You bet there is. Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19, it shows up. In Acts chapter 18, you remember Apollos? He's speaking mightily the word of the Lord, and he's, and he's teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he's got one problem. He only knows of the baptism of John. And Aquila and Priscilla take him aside quietly and, they, and, and privately, and they, they teach him a more accurate way. In other words, they teach him that, that John's baptism was preparation for the coming of Jesus, but now that Jesus has come, baptism is now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and is not a baptism of preparation, but is a baptism of completion. And so Apollos had to be instructed concerning what? Baptisms. Just another chapter over, in Acts chapter 19, Paul rolls into Ephesus and he sees, he sees a group of disciples and they're only acquainted with the baptism of John as well. And they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? They said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Well, into what name were you baptized? We were baptized with John's baptism. And he says, whoa, 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 we've got to talk about baptisms. And so he baptizes them in the name of the Jesus, in the name of Jesus lays hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. 
So it makes sense to me that the author of Hebrews, who by the way I think is Apollos, may have considered explanation about baptisms as being fundamental to the beginning of the Christian faith. Okay, so you're like, okay, all right, so repent and believe and be baptized, but what's all this, what's all this stuff about laying on of hands? I don't know. It's a difficult phrase, and all I can say for sure is that the laying on of hands was a frequent occurrence in the early church. It often accompanied baptism as a rite of initiation into the covenant community, and it was often, in the book of Acts, closely connected with the impartation of the Holy Spirit. They laid hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. There's some theological problems that we've got to work through with this. Now's not the time, but here's what you need to know. Early church practice would seem to indicate that the laying on of hands was a sign imposed by the church upon the person saying, we recognize in you faith and the Holy Spirit. We are are laying hands, it's almost like extending the right hand of fellowship. We We are laying hands on you and, this is where confirmation came from, confirming you in the faith. So how do we bring that over into the 21st century? You want to know what the fundamentals of the Christian faith are? You've got to repent from dead works. You've got to believe the gospel of God. You've got to be baptized with the right baptism. And by the way, Baptists have to talk about baptisms because there's many of them out there. And you need to be received into the fellowship of a local church that recognizes you as a believer in the new covenant. But then there's five and six. So we've talked about conversion. We've talked about initiation. Now we talk about consummation. The resurrection of the dead and the coming judgment. Two themes that that dominate the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. And they dominate because they both include the hope unto which we are saved. We are saved in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And the reason why we must be saved. Because when the dead are raised they will be judged. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting death. Are you tracking with me? So, if you are here and you are new to the faith, or, or you're here and you're saying, I need a review, a strengthening of my foundation, you know what? That's totally cool. That's what we're here for. The Bible has words to speak to you, and here they are. You need to repent of your dead works. You need to turn away from everything that you were trusting in that is, that is not God. And you need to trust in all that God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And you need to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you need to be welcomed into the fellowship of a, holy, of a, of a local church that recognizes your profession of faith and sees the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in your life. And you need to know that there will come a day when the dead will be raised, the righteous and the unrighteous, and the righteous will be raised to everlasting life and the unrighteous to everlasting death. Those are the ABCs. That's the beginning of the faith. But there comes a point in time when we've got to go further and we've got to go deeper and we've got to build on that foundation, which is what the book of Hebrews is for. So the problem arises when Christians don't do that. 
when they don't build on that initial gospel message, when they never press deeper into the knowledge of Christ, when they never wrestle through difficult doctrines, when they never chew on the solid food of the Word of God. That was the issue with the congregation to which this author wrote, and it's the issue in so many of today's evangelical churches. I have met so many like this. They've been in the church, they've been in the faith for decades, yet they're still in the kindergarten when it comes to their knowledge of Christ. And furthermore, they're rather unconcerned about it. Got my ticket stamped, I know what I got, I know what I got to know to get in. Is it okay? What would the author of Hebrews say? It is most definitely not okay. It is abnormal and it is dangerous. Why? Because it is in the nature of living branches to grow and to bear fruit. And it is in the the nature of living believers to grow and to bear fruit. To press on to maturity in Christian truth. To increase in their knowledge and understanding and love of the scriptures. To become teachers of the word who are able to pass on the faith to new generations. To to become parents who are able to pass on the faith to their children. It is the design of God that churches should never have to seek for connect group leaders. Why? Because they're in abundance. That's the norm. Those aren't exceptional churches. They're normal churches. And when a church isn't normal, it's in danger. And when a believer doesn't grow, it calls into question whether he is actually alive. In Hebrews 5, 13 through 14, the author speaks of the benefit that belongs to the mature believer. A benefit which is lacking in, in the immature infant. You got that distinction, right? It's totally normal and fine to be a new believer and not know a thing. I, we're, we're totally cool with that. It's lack of growth over an extended period of time that creates the trouble. Okay? Because what should begin to happen... During the course of that time is this. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You see what he's doing? He's laying out two what we call antithetical opposite parallels, okay? Two opposite realities, and he's contrasting them. He says, on the one hand, there is the spiritual infant who can digest only milk and is therefore not accustomed to the word of righteousness. On the other hand, there is the spiritually mature who's digesting the solid food of the word, and therefore his senses are trained to discern good and evil. Do you have the two pictures in mind? Now, why does he, why does he separate it like that? Why does he describe the reality in this way? because life is really, really hard. It's full of these difficult choices that require a certain ability to reason through complex moral issues. In, In order to walk in righteousness, in the moral filth of this world, we have to be able to take the word of righteousness 
and apply it to our lives. We have to be able to chew on it, digest it, mull it over, and then apply it to the specific circumstances in which we encounter. And it's not easy. In fact, it's often quite difficult to take an ancient text and apply it in a modern world. What are you going to do about stem cell research? What, What does the Bible have to say about stem cell research? What about the question of life support and, and whether or, or when it's okay to, to remove that? What, what about Romans 13 and the question of smuggling Bibles into countries in which it's illegal? Can, can you lie? Is it okay with God if you lie to a customs official about whether you're carrying contraband into the country when the contraband is the word of life. We've got to be able to think through these things. I mean, these are not theoretical questions. These are all questions in one form or another that people in our church are dealing with right now or have in the recent past. How are we going to walk righteously? Should I continue to pay taxes to the government when my taxes are used to to fund and support abortions through Planned Parenthood? Am I just going to pull out and say, well, I I renounce my citizenship? What are you going to do? Because you can't not think about it. Believers are intended to be thinkers. And we've got to be thinkers, and this text is calling us to be thinkers. To be Christian thinkers with sharp minds and burning hearts. And beyond the question of biblical ethics, what what about the simple fact that the only way to know God with increasing depth and intensity, the only way to grow in my faith and love in Christ, the only way to increase in the fruit of the Spirit is... The only way to go deeper in my experience of joy in God is to go deeper in my knowledge of God's word. I want more of him. I I want to know more of him. I want to experience more of him. And that's not going to happen unless I go deep. There are vistas of breathtaking glory that are only visible from the top of the mountain. And that's why we're climbing Mount Hebrews. In order that we may stand on the top and see the redemptive landscape in every every direction and fall on our knees in worship of the God who designed it all. But you're not going to see it if you don't climb. And that's why so many people are not enthralled with the glory of God because they've never ascended the peaks that they may see it. You cannot begin to comprehend the glory of all that God has done in Christ to save you if you never strap on your gear and begin climbing the heights. At First Baptist Church of Nixa, we are not interested in producing a multitude of infantile converts. We are interested in producing strong, steadfast, mature disciples of Christ who are mountain climbers in the truth of God. We are interested in producing disciples who can reason through the complex moral issues that they face. 
in order that they may walk in righteousness in the midst of an ungodly world. Their senses are trained through practice to take the word of righteousness and discern good from evil. We are interested at First Baptist Nixa in producing God-seeking, God-enjoying, God-glorifying theology-loving disciples who are growing in both their knowledge of Christ and their passion for Christ. Growing in their head and throbbing in their heart. How do we do it? What are the means to maturity? It's not rocket surgery. It's not hard. It's the same means that have been around for millennia. It's the word and lots of it. How do we produce mature believers? What are the means to maturity? Well, what does the author say is the difference between the infants and the mature? The infants partake of what? Milk. The mature partake of what? Solid food. What's solid food? This is solid food. So how are we going to get solid food into us? Let me just recommend a few ways as we close. Number one, come here on ten, at 1015 on a Sunday morning and I will give you solid food. I promise you that. We will unpack the glories of Scripture together and you will have stuff to go home and chew on. Number two, come at 850 and participate and connect and together with other growing, maturing disciples, you will, you will take this solid food and you'll chew on it together, which is a disgusting metaphor, I know, but don't press it too far. You will begin to take the application and work it out in, this, in the specific situations of your life. You'll be able to say, you know what, this happened to, the, to me this week, and I'm not sure what I should have done. Let's talk through it. Where does that happen? It happens in Connect where you take the word and you apply it to the specific circumstances of your life. Number three, just read the word. Read it, and then read it again, and then meditate on it, and then unpack it. Personal, but solid food is found in personal Bible study if you go to the Bible looking for solid food. And then fourth, I know God wires people in different ways, and, and that's magnificent. But I think all believers ought to strive to be thinkers, and thinkers are readers. I think, I think you ought to try to tackle a book that will help you grow in your knowledge of God. Where are you going to get solid food? Solid food's found in Sunday morning worship. Solid food's found in Connect. Solid food is found in your own devotional time. Solid, solid food is sitting underneath teachers who can take solid food and break it apart and give it to you. But you need solid food. By and large, today's church doesn't care much for theology and biblical truth. But we're going to be different. We must be different. We must be a people with sharp minds and burning hearts, not separating the two as if they are two distinct things. Sharp minds and burning hearts, one without the other, is utterly useless. God designed believers to possess both. Sharp minds, burning hearts, people with theological depth and people with spiritual strength and maturity. A people accustomed to the word of righteousness who through practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's who we want to be as a people at First Baptist Nixa. 
And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, this passage is a call to press on to maturity. And I pray that it is a call that will be heard by every disciple in this room. And for any who are here who may be new to the faith or not yet in the faith, I pray that the fundamentals, the foundation that we laid out, I pray that they would plant their feet firmly upon it. That they would repent from their dead works and trust in the gospel of God. That they would come and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And that they would come and be received into the fellowship of a local church. That they would live in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And that they would walk rightly because there is coming a judgment. Lord, give the foundation to the new. And call the rest to maturity. This I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.